0: This is it. The answers begin tonight. I want to thank you guys for walking through 4 weeks of intense theology about heaven. Now we get to the stuff you really care about. Okay? We've walked through we've walked through as a group all the pieces about the judgments, our time in the intermediate heaven, what happens immediately after death, and we've wrestled with some pretty tough theological questions. Tonight, We're going to start answering the specifics, and I want to leave it open for you guys to ask questions. But here's my request. Let's keep the questions limited to the questions we're actually probing because there's a lot more coming, you'll see. And I know this group loves to debate, so we're going to kind of go through a couple of these. I'm going to present some questions, and then you guys can take me on a little bit and give me your thoughts. I want to go back over something we did in series number four, which is the biblical vocabulary. Remember that our ultimate destination is the new earth. That is heaven. After we're done with all the intermediate things that take place in heaven above, and after the final judgment, and after the new Jerusalem comes down to the new earth, we are going to dwell with the Lord forever on the new earth. But a very important point that we made was that earth is not scrapped and a new creation made in its place. Just as we are resurrected, just as we are redeemed, the earth also is resurrected and it is also redeemed. In other words, the curse of sin is lifted from us. And this is what's going to happen. Look at these words. I want you to pay attention to these kind of words. We've used these words, reconcile, restore, recover, return, renew, regenerate, resurrect, And I want to keep those in mind because a lot of the answers to questions about what heaven is going to be like for us in everyday life is going to be very similar to what it's like here on earth right now, except without the curse of sin. And we're going to try to imagine what it's like to remove sin, but not remove everything else because people's temptation has been, and we've talked about this from the beginning, people's temptation always is to assume that heaven is everything on earth taken away. So what's left us like with wings on clouds playing harps and singing all day. Or just eternal worship services. And remember, we started with how that just, nobody's interested in that. You know, and and there are a couple of people that are interested in that. But most people are not interested in that. You know, we started even from the first series that none of us are looking forward to heaven because it just doesn't sound like something we should look forward to. And God knows that. That's because that's not even his plan. We made that up in our minds when we materialized everything and then made everything material evil. And that's not God's word. Remember, this is the quote that Anthony, I wish I could pronounce this guy's last name because he's a very important theologian. I would sound smart if I knew how to pronounce it, but we're gonna say his name is Hoekima. I'm not really sure, but it's his name from now on. Anthony says, if God would have to annihilate the present cosmos, Satan would have won a great victory. Satan would have succeeded in so devastatingly corrupting the present cosmos and the present earth that God could do nothing with it, but to totally blot it out of existence. But Satan did not win such a victory. On the contrary, Satan has been decisively defeated. God will reveal the full dimensions of that defeat when he shall renew the very earth which Satan deceived mankind and finally banish from it all the results of Satan's evil machinations. Simple doctrine, it means that God is not gonna let Satan win. If God had to recreate the whole earth from scratch, Satan would have at least won a partial victory Because even though he doesn't win in the end, he would have at least messed up God's plan so enough. Let's just say he would have messed it up enough that he would have at least had to start over. And God's not going to even give him that measure. Now, when we studied that during the theological portions of our studies about heaven, that meant that we were not going to just start over. We understood that concept. But I think we need to remember it again. This is the reason I bring it up. Because now, when we start to ask questions like, are we going to eat, drink, sleep, we need to remember that we're not starting over. There's going to be a continuation. God's not going to say, all right, let's see, new plan entirely, new life, new creation. We're still the same people, resurrected, redeemed, just no sin. So we're going to do a lot of the same things we already know how to do. In fact, I'm going to be a little bit daring and say we're going to already do some of the things right now that we'll be doing later because we desire them. God put that desire in our heart now, okay? And we're going to desire to do them later, just not sinfully desire them. So, here's the quick review so we catch up. Life on New Earth begins with a resurrected body. I think we all know that. We're going to be in a resurrected bodies. The resurrection means a continuity. We asked the question last time, how far-reaching is the resurrection? Remember, that question was intended to say, if God could resurrect souls and bodies and bring us together, could he also resurrect or redeem or reclaim or renew some things of this earth? For example... Maybe a worship song that somebody wrote. Could it be that when you get to heaven, somebody's actually singing that song? Or maybe a poem that you wrote. Could it actually be that it might survive the recreation of earth? And actually somehow in the new earth, that survives. Is it there? It's possible. We don't know. That's healthy Christian speculation. But it's just to remind us that we don't know the extent of God's resurrection of the new earth, his remaking of the new earth. It could actually include things like features of the earth that we know now, he might keep some of them. You know, There may be a spot that's very special to you right now where you go because you think God is in that place. How cool would it be if you go to heaven and you find out that that place still exists on the new earth and it's still there and you get to go there and think this is the spot I used to be with God and it's still here. Now he's with me all the time. I mean, so things like that are possible. It just shows us how wonderful his plan could be. And then finally we moved into that last point, we will rule with Christ seemed to bother some of you. Even though the promises are expressed in Scripture that we will rule and become co-heirs with Christ, some of us didn't like the concept because, again, we were struggling with people being our bosses and us being the boss of other people, okay? But remember, it's scriptural. We will actually rule over the angels. We will rule over one another and be co-heirs with Christ. And maybe this is where the meek will finally inherit the earth is when they rule over all those non-meekers. All right, let's go to the next slide. Here's the questions we're going to cover tonight. First question, will the earth have a sun and a moon? I'm just going to ask for a show of hands tonight as we go through each question. I want to see where you guys are at now that we've gone. Remember, we started with a survey at the very beginning. And if you read the survey results, it was kind of funny because everybody thought, really, it, was, it showed in the survey that most of us thought we were just going to be singing and worshiping all day. So, will the earth have a sun and a moon? How many people think the earth will have a sun and a moon? Okay, we got a couple of people who think it will, probably less than half. Revelation 21, 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. All you unspiritual people who want a sun. Hold on. Ah, good thinking. We're going to get to that point in just a second, Monique. Hold on. Revelation 22:5 5 says there will be no more night. They will not need the light or a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. All right. Hold on. Let me get to, let me throw one more. Let me throw one more. The sun. This is Isaiah 60 19 through 21. By the way, I quote Isaiah quite a bit and I should say why because I don't think I've ever made this statement. Isaiah mirrors Revelation and many of the exact quotes are found in both books because at the end of Isaiah, he begins to prophesy what the new earth will be like. And of course, it was probably not very well understood at the time, but you, know, you could see it in the writing that these words mirror Revelation very well. Isaiah says, The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will never wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Now, I know you guys are already stirring a little bit. This is an important point. It's true that a lot of people want to read into that and say maybe he's just making an analogy. And I do want to point out that that is in part true, because when he says in the end of, like, for example, this part about Isaiah, and your days of sorrow will end. He is clearly making a metaphor out of night and sorrow. And too, in ancient societies, night was considered a fearful time. It was a time that's, you know, that is metaphorically related to evil and a number of things. Evil acts, sinful deeds, lots of things. So even in the passages in Revelation where they talk about no night or those kind of things, they're really trying to make an analogy that there will be no more of this sorrow or evil. But there is also this unmistakable concept that the Lord will be the light and you will not need a sun, okay? And it sounds like, at least in the city, and Monique made a good point where she said it says you don't need it doesn't mean it won't be there. And I think that's partly the right way to look at this, because if you understand that the Lord made the heavens, all of them, not just this little solar system, all the stars that we see are suns and moons and they're moving around each other and I don't think that that will stop in any way. Now, in the city being in New Jerusalem, it's pretty clear that there will not be any need for any light because the Lord will be so much light. And there probably doesn't even seem to be that any room to argue that there'll be any nighttime in the city. Okay, but we talked also about the New Jerusalem as big as it may be. You know, we talked last time that it might even be as big as the North American continent if you read the exact description and revelation of its size. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't go around the globe to somewhere else and peer out in heaven. If Monique's special place was with God looking at the stars, then maybe if you go all the way around to like Madagascar or something like that, you can hang out, you know, get away. And by the way, I'm not saying that, that... I'm not saying that New Jerusalem will be in North America. That's very Americentric for me to think that, of course. You know, maybe it will be where the other Jerusalem is, and that's the way he's going to stop the fighting in the Middle East. He's just going to land it on all of them and just kill them. Go, you know. No believers here. You know. All right. So maybe that's a possibility that could happen. All right. But wherever it is, you could probably find a way to say, I'd like to be somewhere further away. You know, there's no indication, by the way, that all of us will have to live in the New Jerusalem. It only says that we'll all be citizens of the New Jerusalem and we'll be able to be there. So, just as a concept, sounds like on this earth there may not be a sun and a moon, but you may be able to find one, but it doesn't rule it out. I mean, it would be superfluous maybe to have a sun and a moon when there's so much light that you couldn't even see them but I don't know that God's going to suspend the laws of gravity on earth just because he happens to be that bright. okay? And I think that's really a good way to look at it, in my opinion, is that we always seem to read certain things into the Gospels, and once we make an assumption, we try to read everything else around it to mean something, and oftentimes the assumption doesn't flow logically to everything else we're saying. So in this particular case, we're saying that the Lord is so bright in his radiance that we don't need a sun. That doesn't mean there won't be one. And it could even be silly to have one, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be there or that somehow we'll say, like, the Lord's going to hold the earth up without gravity just kind of hold it there, you know, so that he can be the son and not have another son. I think that people who like the night that much are probably just sinful through and through and they won't go to heaven, so it won't really matter. Uh, I think God's analogy is true. You'll probably be practicing witchcraft with your other buddies. All right. Uh, (laughs) You know what? One of the things I was reading in in um, Randy Alcorn's book about heaven was what about people who like sunsets and what about people who who like to see the moon. And that's what I'm saying is that, that's why I'm saying I think that if you are at a different part of the earth I, don't, I think that might still be there. The other thing is this is a big if. It comes at the end of our series but I'll throw it out now. There's nothing in the theology of heaven that says we're going to be limited to living on this earth by the way. All I can tell you is The fact that the Lord's light is so bright means that we probably won't need a light in the new Jerusalem. Is there a sun still out there? Maybe. Can you go to the other side of the world and kind of hang out there and see nighttime and see the regular heavens operating? Probably. You know, if he created all the heavens and they're there and we don't die, like, well, what else can we do with that? Can we like just, you know, if we have forever, can we get on little spaceships and start riding around, you know? And time isn't a factor, you know? It's just speculation. All right. Let's go to the next question. Will there be oceans and a sea? A very related question. Okay. How many people think there will be oceans and a sea? Okay. Here's what the Bible says. Revelation 21.1. It says, there will be no more sea. All right. Okay, i got to see this is going to be really tough to go through tonight because we haven't even hit the controversial ones yet, you know? (laughs) All right? There will be no more sea. Now, I'm going to read one other verse to you, though. Isaiah 65, talking about the same period, the eternal heaven. And he says to the Lord, The wealth of the seas will be brought to you, and to you the riches of nations will come. In verse 9, he says, Surely the islands look to me, in the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your sons from afar with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God. So there's a tension here, okay? You have Revelation saying there will be no more seas, and then you have Isaiah talking about the wealth of the oceans and ships on the sea bringing you silver and gold to the city of the Lord, basically, to honor him. So what's going on here, Ben? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really a good way to put it. I think what Revelation is getting at in this particular context is very similar to the concept of darkness. It is in the verse, if you put it in context, when it says there will be no more sea, it is talking about no more sea, no more darkness, no more sorrow. And the sea was seen as a place of fear, mystery, unknown. People were lost at sea. People were afraid of the sea. There were all sorts of myths about the sea. And we do have the verse in Isaiah that seems to imply that there are bodies of water, at least, okay? Now, for those of you who speak English who are trying to tell me that a sea is different than a lake, is different than an ocean, that's in English. We have different words for different bodies of water. The sea seemed to cover quite a bit of large bodies of water, okay? such as the Sea of Galilee, which I went to a couple weeks ago and it was just a big lake, okay? <laughs> All right, not a sea, unless you know, you're going to start naming bodies of water different ways. Okay? But you can look at it two ways. All right. I don't think that there will be no water on earth. That's clear. Because we know that the Lord tells us that right down in the New Jerusalem runs the river of life. And it's running forever and it runs somewhere. Okay. Now, I also don't think that we're going to suspend the seasons entirely. We're going to talk about that for a moment. So there may not be seas in a metaphorical sense, the darkness, the things that we get lost in. Okay. But it also may be that there's no more salt water systems the way we understand them? We don't know. But it seems like there should be bodies of water because we have this verse in Isaiah. And we have other verses that are going to tell us about how all of the creatures and all of those things are going to exist in the world. Well, they got to exist in the water, you know? I mean, there's no indication that he's going to wipe out all sea life in the new world, in the new earth. So you will often hear people quote the verse that says there's no sea. But I think if you put it in context, you'll see what he's really assuring people is that there's no more of this thing that you're worried about. But that doesn't mean there won't be rivers. We know for sure there's at least the river of life. And that probably means there's going to be a lot of other bodies of water. Okay? And are they going to be saltwater bodies? I don't know. Maybe they're all going to be freshwater bodies. Does it matter? Probably better for us. you know? Have more fun, more water. Okay? But I don't think there's going to be anything strange about the earth that's going to suddenly say, It's just one big landmass. I also don't think that we're going to start defying all the rules of like the water cycle just because now we live on this new earth. I think for us, one of the most beautiful things about the earth, if you ask people to describe their most beautiful place, most people will describe a place that includes water in some respect. I I think God knows that. I mean, it could be a waterfall, it could be a river, it could be an ocean scene, it could be some island somewhere. Some people will say, like, I love the mountains, that's great, but most people, I think, I would hazard a guess would describe somewhere that has water. And I think that's because we're going to find those places just as pleasing as God does. That leads us to the next question. Will there be any seasons and weather? I think there will. Ezekiel 34, 26 to 27 says, I will bless them, talking about the future and the places surrounding my hill. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops." I think that we will probably experience the same types of things in the New Earth. I think in the New Earth that we'll probably see those seasons. I don't see any reason to think that there wouldn't be there. But at the same time, you could say, yeah, maybe there will always be one way. I mean, he doesn't have need for the seasons because he'll always provide. It depends, I think, on your view of whether God's going to be creating some new rules in the new earth that are going to totally change the rules here, or whether you believe that things should continue to operate pretty much the same, except without sin, as because what we've seen in this world is evidence of what is coming or what should have been. And I think things that are are beyond man's control, like seasons, were probably always intended to be there. If you read all of the passages in the Bible about death, none of them ever really deal with vegetation in other words the impact of sin on our lives is what causes death in living beings like humans but I don't know that that stretches to vegetation I don't know that you could say that things like that leaves never fell in the garden of Eden because a leaf falling you could say is implying some sort of death and that's really what seasons do don't they I mean, some of that stuff doesn't really die. Leaves fall and maybe some of it dies. I mean, some of it dies and regenerates and comes back out of the soil again. But I don't think that God ever promised that there would be no, no natural cycles and say, you know what, that kind of death will end because I don't think the trees ever sinned to begin with to earn their death, you know what I mean? Maybe just part of their cycle. And, and that's a good point that you bring up because a lot of people point to that and say, that's, and we're going to talk for in a minute about meat whether we're going to be able to eat meat in heaven and the same concept comes back up because to eat meat something must die and we go through that whole exercise again. So hold the thought about death for a second because we're going to come back to it. I think the answer is there probably will be weather. I can't guarantee it for you guys who love snow, but it seems like there's no reason not to believe. If you believe there is going to be weather, by the way, it seems like a good argument that there's also going to be large bodies of water because we know that weather comes from large bodies of water and the interaction with them against land, right? Right? Like rain, snow, the the water cycle, all those kind of things. Okay? So, just some healthy speculation. Let's get into things that would be interesting. (laughs) Will we maintain our identities? How many people think we'll be the same people? Maintain our identities? Good. You guys have learned something in the talks that we've had over the last few weeks. Yes, we will maintain our identities. We will be the same people. Here's some verses just to tell you the obvious Job 19, 26 and 27. Job says to the Lord, In my flesh I will see God, I and not another. Luke 24, 39. Jesus, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as I have. And of course, to debunk once and for all the popular notion in society, we will not be angels. (laughs) We will be humans. Body and soul. Body and soul together in heaven. And you will be yourself. Will you have emotions? Yeah. We will have emotions. But here, contrast with this. There will be some you won't have. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain or sorrow. So you'll have emotions, just not those. Okay. <laughs> Now, some people think, and I've actually heard this from Dave Seau, our esteemed theologian and scholar, that his teacher once remarked to him that being in heaven is like eternal ecstasy all the time. I actually think that that might not be so accurate. I'm not saying that there'll be moments where we're not happy, but I don't think that you can expect heaven to be just like one level of supreme ecstasy to the point where you just can't take it anymore, because that's not a normal life existence. I think there'll be moments where we're quiet. There'll be moments when we're ecstatic. There'll be moments, I think, when we're actually speechless at something that happens. And those are different heightened levels of emotion. Now, okay, it's hard to imagine no sorrow and no pain. And all everyone always on earth, all our great wisdom is, but without the sorrow, how can you appreciate the good times? Like, well, we'll have eternity to figure it out. Okay? Because all that humanistic, earthly philosophy is kind of going to be junk in heaven. And we will somehow be able to have constant joy and love and ecstasy without having to experience moments of sorrow or pain. It doesn't answer the question because I I can't fully imagine how life could be complete without some moment of sorrow. But I know that that's what God promises us, is that we will be whole, we will be totally satisfied, there will be no more sorrow and no more pain. He's just saying to us, I tell you that there won't be these things. Okay, now I used to think again, like, you know, that, that reminds me, you guys, some of you might have seen it, that Twilight Zone, where the guy, like, he dies, he's, you know, and he goes to heaven, and like, the, you know, they show him around, it's like, he's in Vegas, like, every bet he wins, every slot machine he's, like, winning, and all the women are hanging out with him, everywhere he goes, everything's free, everything he wants, and he's finally, he's so bored, you know, he's just so sick of it, and he says to the, his guardian angel guy, he's like, you know what, this is so boring. I want to try out the other place for a change. I can't take this anymore. And the guy goes, this is the other place. You know? And that's like the big irony of that thing is that he was in hell not knowing it because everything was going his way. It was so boring. Well, some of us think that's what heaven could be like if every, there's no sorrow, no pain. Some of us are thinking, well, is that just gonna, everything's just going to be good and fun. I mean, isn't that going to get boring in a different way? You know, like, well, I'm not going to be singing all day boring. Is it going to be boring to just not have... Even the fear that something could go wrong or anything, it's just everything's gonna be going right all the time. Yeah, I can't imagine what that's gonna be. I'm not, I, I can't, Im- but that's what God promises. Yeah, I mean, I can't deny that that's what Scripture says, you know? And at least the good news is we don't have to sing all day, but now, how is that, how that other stuff is not gonna be as boring? And I think you'll see in the, in the end, I'm going to conclude with a, with a discussion about free will in heaven in a, in a few minutes, and maybe we'll tie this back in to talking about how the absence of things does not necessarily mean you know, that we don't have other things. And I'll leave that point for a moment, okay? But let me just throw out a couple things. We know that in heaven people laugh, Luke 6.21. We know they have emotions. If you want to look at Revelation 6.10 and 7.10, we even know that the angels have emotions, it says in Revelation. So... There will definitely be emotions. Maybe there'll even be a broad number of emotions and some we don't even know what they are yet, you know. But there will not be some emotions and those are the ones that seem like sorrow and crying. and those. Now, does that mean you can't have tears of joy over something that's just so cool like at the end of almost every movie we see where they're trying to get you to cry, you know. You, you can have rocky moments in heaven where you're like crying and all that stuff. I mean, you can do that because those will be like, you know, like different kinds. I think you'll have tears of appreciation you know, okay, if you're those people who like to be in worship service, you know, and the song is just so good that you're like tearing up, you know, you might get to do that in heaven too and no one's going to turn around and go, hey, that's not allowed here, man, I read. You probably can get away with tears of joy, okay? Next question, will we have desires in heaven? Imagine for a moment that you're in heaven and anything you desire, anything you desire, is permissible. And anything you desire is never, is never wrong. Because if you go to heaven and God removes sin from the equation and you can't, there's no more sin, anything that you desire for the first time in your life, you don't have to stop and say, is this good? Is this from God? Or is this like my desire? You know, is this your desire or my desire? It's like from in heaven, The beauty of having desires is that it's all okay. What we won't have is unholy desires. What we won't have is sinful desires. But just as Wes pointed out, there are so many desires that are so holy or just good for us or wholesome. Hunger, thirst, rest, basic natural desires of our human bodies. Why would we expect that in heaven we wouldn't have those? Okay, now... Let me put an asterisk around hunger and thirst. I'm not saying, like, we're going to go hungry because we know there will be no more hunger and no more thirst. But that doesn't mean we won't have a desire to go to the buffet again. (laughs) You know, my part of heaven, you know? All right? It doesn't mean that we won't have a desire to rest. I mean, there's going to be nobody who's tired and sleepless, but it doesn't mean that we won't say, you know what? I'm just going to take a nap right now. And no one can make me feel guilty because there's no guilt in heaven, you know? (laughs) I'm just going to take a nap, and it could be wherever I want. You know, I'm right here, okay, in the middle of this class. I'm taking a nap. Yeah. No one will go to church in heaven because there will be no more guilt, all right? <laughs> you know, that, that will be it. There will be no more church because there will be no more guilt, okay? And there will be no more, like, passing around the offering plate, you know? No more guilt. You know, guilt motivates so much of the church. I just don't know that it will even be functional. That's probably why there's no churches in heaven. It's just like, I will be the guy. You just come and worship me. Here's Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I love that because it's almost like a circular reasoning. You know? If you delight yourself in God, he will give you more of himself and that'll be the desire of your heart and you'll get more of it. It's like a big circle, you know? But in a way, if our desires are in tune with him, he'll give us everything that we desire, which is him. You know? He's saying you can have as much as me as you want. So if I become the desire of your heart... So in heaven, we know at least even that eternal truth will last. Remember, my big thing is if there's an eternal truth in Scripture here on earth, it's eternal. It lasts. It keeps going even into the next life. It doesn't stop. And I think we will even desire the Lord there, and that's a healthy desire. We can all agree on that. You know, that's a Christian desire. Like, will we desire the Lord? Yeah! We'll desire the Lord. Like, we can all agree to that one. You know, will we desire a big chicken dinner? Sure. It'll be there too. But that one, people are, like, less likely to raise their hands for. Alright, next question. Will we all have beautiful bodies? Yes. Here's a quote that I particularly liked about this subject as I was researching it. It says this, I expect our bodies to be good-looking, but not with a weight-lifting, artificial implant, skin-tuck, tanning-booth sort of beauty. The sculpted physique of our present culture would be regarded as freakish in other times and places. Our new bodies will have a natural beauty that won't need cosmetic touch-ups, Even, next question on the screen if you look at it is, will we get fat in heaven? Can we get fat in heaven? This person says, as for fat, God created fat as part of our bodies. We'll surely have some, but probably in healthy proportions. So what does that mean? Does that mean we'll have, will we all be beautiful? Yes. Will we be beautiful in the way that we currently see beauty? Probably not, because we see beauty today through the lens of a very sinful, cursed world. Okay? We look at certain things today and we see beauty... In everything we look at today, it's still tainted by a sinful desire that we just can't get rid of. In heaven, what is beautiful may totally surprise us, but we do know that we'll be beautiful in God's eyes and each other's eyes. We just don't know what that's going to be. I think the answer to the question, will we all be beautiful, is yes. What will we look like? I have no idea. Another question we put up on the screen, will we have new abilities in heaven? Remember when Christ rose in his resurrected body, he seemed to have a few new abilities, like walking through the wall or like disappearing, or he even ascended into heaven by defying gravity and just kind of flying up. But we always say that we have to be cautious with using Christ as an example because there is that little extra thing that he has about being God <laughs> that we don't have, all right? So there's a possibility that his abilities were more related to his god nature than his man nature, I don't know. But it's possible. You know like when when people talk about new abilities this takes on a number of different meanings. One is will there be physical attributes to our bodies that we don't know about? Will we be stronger for example? Can we be faster? Can we fly? Some people will think like, well if you can't die, that means you can't drown. So could you go just underwater for 3 hours and swim, you know? <laughs> okay. Well, but we know there's going to be bodies of water probably. So could you just go like swimming around with them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So I don't know. I mean, when you take the concept of the body can't die to these ludicrous extensions, it really leaves a lot of things to think about that are fun. Like, I, you know, you guys know that I've always thought about the Are we going to get to explore other planets? I mean, we can't die, so we don't need oxygen, do we? I don't know. How's that work? I mean, we know that we're going to live forever. So, a lot of things that seem impossible now, yeah, I mean, can you jump off some big, huge mountain and go, wee, (laughs) just because, you know, just because you can't die? I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's just, I'm leaving it open, okay? But we know that Christ did have some new abilities, but then again, he had abilities before he died, so. He really not a very good example for us to hang our hat on there. All right, here's a question that bugs a lot of theologians. They've wasted a lot of writing on this one. What age will we be in heaven? The question usually emanates when you have a kid who's like two year, two months old and he dies. So when you go to heaven and you see the baby... Will it be a baby? Will it be two years old, two months old? Will it be grown up? What age will it be? I'm going to summarize what theologians believe because it's taken so much to figure this out. But in the end, most people believe since our bodies in heaven will be perfect and since they will not die and everything is kind of like optimized for maximum use and enjoyment, it seems that most people agree that somewhere around 30 years old is like where you're at your best, at your peak, you know? So that people will be around that age. I asked my mom this today as I was preparing for this talk. And I said, I said, have you ever thought about when you go to heaven, what age you'll be? And she's like, you mean how many years we'll live there? And I'm like, no, no, just what age you will actually be in heaven. She's like, no, I never thought about that, you know. I'm like, so do you think if you die at like 65, you're going to be 65? And she's like, well, that wouldn't be fair. It'd be better to die early then so you could really make (laughs) maximum use of your body while you're up there, you know. But in the end, I think most people agree. Now, Thomas Aquinas said it had to be 33 because that was the age Jesus died, so we'll follow his example. But, you know, I think that most people agree it's somewhere in that neighborhood. The good news for you guys who'll get older is at some point, you know, when you look in the mirror, Monique, and you're thinking like, the years are really getting bad for me. Don't worry, you'll get to go backwards. <laughs> backwards, you'll, you'll have good news. You'll be just like, don't worry about it. This is only temporary. When I get to heaven, I'll be back to what I looked like when I was 30. Okay? Yes. That's what theologians have agreed upon. I'm not going to read you all the dialogue back and forth, but the the consensus has been that if you die at like 90 or if you die at 2 or 5 or whatever age, most likely your resurrected body will be something around a 30-year-old, what you would have been had you made it to 30. Because otherwise, what you have is you have a belief that if someone dies at two months old, that when they're in heaven, they get to be two months old for the rest of their life. Or you have the belief that only babies get to grow, but if they grow, like, how come we're not growing? You know, so you have these, like, things. So they've debated it back and forth, and I'm just here to tell you that that's what the consensus is. Now, we could disagree, and by the way, we could all be wrong. Like, all the people up there right now are probably looking down and going, nah, listen to those guys. They got it so wrong. They're all messed up if you want to go a step further, there are a minority of scholars who actually believe that for babies only, there'll be some special rule that allows babies to grow up to the age that they would get to naturally. The reason I don't think that view is very persuasive, and most people don't either, is it doesn't seem consistent to have special rules for special people in certain (coughs) circumstances. It seems like if we have these resurrected bodies, you know, that somehow God's just going to resurrect our bodies, they're going to be us, but you know, I mean, if You're an old person, and you want to have a perfect body. That it implies that you're going back somehow, you know. Because as we know, as you get older, things start stop working. You know, reproducing. Well, not according to scripture, (laughs) but I know we haven't gotten to that. We're leaving the big zinger about marriage and sex in heaven till two weeks from now. It's a guarantee you guys show up. You know, it's it's like to guarantee you guys show up. You know, I mean, we're leaving it to last because that's all you guys care about. You know. You guys, we get to see God. You're like, uh, guys, there's going to be sex. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Will we eat and drink in heaven? Yeah. You know what? Most people will say yes, and that's good. I think, how many people think we'll eat and drink in heaven? Okay. You know, we keep hearing about that feast. You know, like I've said before in the past that when churches do talk about heaven, in the rare instances they bring it up, Usually what they do is they show you the door to heaven. Like, they go, okay, you got to believe in Jesus and do all these things. Because in the end, we're going to go to the feast of the Lamb. And then they just leave you right there. And then you wonder, like, what you're going to do the rest of your eternity after the feast. Now, this question about eating and drinking in heaven, some people point to this verse. And this is exactly the type of logic verse that I want you guys to catch. It says in Romans 14 17, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay, isn't that exactly the type of Christian answer that somebody would throw at you? You know, like... It's not about eating and drinking up there. It's about righteousness and peace and joy. It's like, but he's not talking about heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of God here on earth and the way we're supposed to live our lives. And he was actually chastising a group of people who all they were doing was eating and drinking. You know, and living a life of I wouldn't call it, you know, debauchery, but basically they're living in the pleasures here and not concentrating on the other things that the kingdom of God brings. It has nothing to do with heaven. There's so many ample verses that talks about the feasts and different things that are gonna be going on in there. In heaven. So I think, yes, we will eat and drink and have a good time. Um, Jesus actually said this in Luke 14 15 as as he's having a feast with one of the Pharisees. A man jumps up and exclaims, as Jesus is explaining, he says, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus doesn't say, Hey, there's going to be no eating up there. Okay. And Revelation 7 16 says, Never will they hunger, never will they thirst. Yeah, somebody could take that and say that's because there won't be anything to eat or drink. You just won't have those desires. But again, I just don't think that's what heaven is all about. So we get to live in these cool new bodies. They may have some new abilities. We will eat and drink. We'll have normal desires of our hearts, but they'll be non-sinful desires. We'll be at an optimal time in our life, you know, as whatever age that is that God finds, but we'll be living there. So question is will we eat meat genesis 9 3 appears to indicate that man did not eat meat until after the flood that up until that point he was vegetarian genesis 9 3 says everything that lives and moves will be food for you just as i gave you the green plants i now give you everything seems to imply in time that up until that point he had not allowed man to eat meat now what does this mean Some people who take the view that heaven will be a parallel of Eden seem to indicate that if man was not eating meat until that point and if there was no death before there was sin, that if you remove sin from the equation and there's no more death, that means that animals don't die either. And if animals don't die, we can't eat them. So here's the view again. Let me show it to you. In the garden, before sin... There's no death. So that means that when you take sin out of the equation in the new earth, there will again be no more death, and therefore you can't eat meat. Yeah, there'll be a lot of uh, veggie burgers going on in heaven. Make sense. You just gave us a lecture about the seasons. Hey, I'm glad somebody's actually got their logic cap on. In the seasons, the only thing that died was vegetation. Okay, And what I was saying was that vegetation and going through its life cycle, is not the kind of death that sin brought into the world. And I think all of us can agree on that, that sin brings death, right? We're all, Everybody together on that one? Sin brings death? Okay. But sin did not bring death to vegetation. Sin brought death certainly to mankind. The question is, and the, the struggle that you guys should be struggling with if you've, if you've started to follow some of my logic leaps, is that if sin brings death to mankind, and if sin does not bring death to vegetation, does it necessarily follow that death brings sin to the animal kingdom? And the church and all its great theologians are divided on this point. They're divided on whether sin brought death to the animal kingdom. The people who believe that that the curse of sin brought death into the whole world, into every living creature, Believe that before the fall of mankind, animals did not die in the garden or just did not die. But once man sinned, that death entered all living beings and then they died as well. So when you remove sin again in heaven, now the animals can't die anymore and we can't eat them. That's one view. The other view is that sin only affected mankind's death, and that animals died before that point. It depends on your frame of mind and how you approach Scripture. If you believe that death did not occur in the animal kingdom, okay, you're stuck with explaining the fossil record. And, and this is one of those things where we begin, the church starts to go in different directions, and arguments end up getting sometimes silly, because you've made a claim about one thing and now you have to follow the logical consequences. So if you say sin is what introduced death into the animal kingdom, I think that if you say that death occurred as a result of sin, and therefore no death could occur before the fall of mankind, this is where the people who struggle with the fossil record really have a problem because they're say they saying the fossil record can't be real. It has to be some other explanation. By the way, the most likely explanation they use is the flood later. They come back and they go, let's bring that in. Now, let's go back to heaven for a moment. This is all interesting, but the question then becomes, if you're one of the people who believes that the consequence of animals dying results from sin, then you're going to believe there's no meat in heaven. If you're one of the people who believes that animals will die naturally, they always just will, you know, just like trees in heaven will go through regular cycles, animals will do the same thing, then you might be eating some beef jerky in heaven, okay? Here is some quotes from the Bible, just so that you can get a contrast, because there are really verses all over the map on this one. Isaiah 25, 6, On the mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, Casey, aged wine. It says here, the best of meats and the finest of wines. This is what Isaiah says, okay? But then Revelation 21 and 4 says, there will be no more death or pain for the older things have passed away, okay? And people who interpret no more death, meaning also to the animal kingdom, okay? So now it's tied, one, one. Point for this side. Ezekiel says, fishermen will spread their nets and catch fish, well aren't fish kinda of part of the animal kingdom somehow? I mean you could say like they're they're not animals. So at least it sounds like we'll be eating some fish. That's death of some kind. Here's Isaiah sixty five, twenty-five. The wolf and lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. They will neither harm nor destroy. This issue's all of the map. Randy Alcorn, who writes this book that we're walking through, is a pretty conservative Christian when it comes to regarding death. And his conclusion is no meat in heaven. I think that to adopt that, adopt that view, you need to make some other consistent findings. It really has to do with the fundamental problem they have with what is the meaning of sin and does it affect the animal kingdom or not. And I guess the reason I point that out to you is, isn't it curious how your belief about one thing when you make a decision seems to affect your whole theology. And what I mean by that, so I'm not cryptic, is you guys know that I have pretty strong beliefs about how the church has viewed science for a long time. And when you make a statement about science to justify one part of your theology, it has repercussions in a lot of places and leads to conclusions which I think sometimes are contrary to Scripture. If Scripture says we're going to have banquets and feasts and eat meats and wine, it seems kind of strange that there's no verse in the Bible that says there will be no meat in heaven. All it says is that they're rationalizing from a theology based on what causes death in the animal kingdom. I'm not saying that's invalid. They may be very right about the cause of sin and how it affects the animal kingdom and that removing sin means there will be no more death. But what I'd like to point out is it's not a theology about heaven that's driving that. It's a theology about science. Ben. Yes. I guess there can be another way for a number of reasons. One is... God sent manna from heaven that they ate and substitute for bread. Okay. The manna that came from heaven, nobody knows what it is or where it came from or why it tasted like bread. So that could be one thing. All right. It could also be that there's something in that we eat in heaven or there's some tree out there that tastes so much like meat or whatever it is that we, we just don't even care. Okay. I know some of those like vegan, vegetarian, nutso people who eat the, like the, what's it called? The, you're a vegetarian, aren't you? What's, What's the, uh, what's, the, what's the mushroom that everybody barbecues and makes it pretend it tastes like meat? Yeah, like those portobello, the portobello thing, you know, where you like roast it and it almost tastes like meat? Okay. Look, anything's possible in heaven, all right? Maybe there's a tree that grows something that tastes so much like meat, we will never care. But I just want to point out that there's a debate as to whether we'll even eat meat in heaven and some people think we won't. And I told you that these questions, when you come down to the nitty gritty, some people think, you know, they're surprised because they think, of course there'll be meat in heaven. Like there'll be feasts with big old... Chicken thing, that's what you do at a feast in heaven, right? Take the big old chicken thing and you just bite into it like this, you know? That's, that's how people picture the feast in heaven, right? Big old like Flintstones chicken bone like thing with a big old hunk of meat on there. And that's what a feast is like in heaven. You hold it up, right? And big goblets of something, you know, but it's never wine. It's always that communion grape juice. It'll be like big goblets of leftover communion grape juice in heaven. You ever wonder what happens to the last drop in those little tiny cups they give you that you never quite get in like Sunday morning that you're trying to get? God is saving all of those up. And when we get to heaven, that's what we'll be drinking. All right. Will we wear clothes in heaven? Yes. How many people think yes? How many people think no? Some people say, you know what? In Eden, we were naked and nobody cared. There was no sin in Eden and nobody cared. So in heaven, we're going to have great looking bodies anyways. We might as well show off. All right. And since there won't be any lust or sin, It'll be just like those people that hang out at the nudist colony all day, right? And don't care, you know? But here's another view. We see in the intermediate heaven that verse where God gives the saints a white robe to wear. In the modern day parlance, it would seem a little odd to give somebody a white robe to us. But if you realize that when John is writing this, most people just wore a white robe. That's kind of what they wore. That was like everyday wear for them. Okay, So it's not like he's giving them, like, we think white robe, oh, they look like saints or kings. They just wore white robes every day. <laughs> to us, a modern-day equivalent would be like handing him somebody a sweatshirt and jeans thing here, put these on, wait a little longer, you know what I mean? Now, I don't know what we're going to wear, but it seems like if you throw away the idea that we're going like, to just start over and go back to Eden, that's what some people think heaven's going to be like, and I don't think that's at all what God intends. It's for us to lose all the progress we've made in good ways, to lose all the things we've discovered about the earth and go back to just running around naked in the garden again. I mean, that might actually be heaven for a lot of people. But I don't think that actually corresponds with God's descriptions of cities and gates and walls and residences and, and all these kind of things that seem like very organized structures. So, good chance, probably we'll be wearing some clothes. Let's get down to some real questions. In heaven... Will we be able to sin? Will we be able to sin in heaven? Here the, are the verses I'm going to rely on. Christ died once, and, we'll, and he will never need to die again for our sins. It's a concept found in Hebrews and, and in 1 Peter. Christ died once, only once. Does not need to die again for sin. Sounds like not going to need it. Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified doesn't sound like we'll have the opportunity to sin if he's perfected it once for everybody and we are the sanctified ones who are now living in heaven doesn't sound like it Hebrews 9:26 Christ has sacrificed himself to put away sin or do away with sin forever so in other words sin is going to be a thing of the past there will be no sin in heaven but what that leads us to is the real question i don't think people are so concerned about will there be sin in heaven The real question I think people are concerned about is, will we have free will in heaven? Will I be able to make any choices in heaven if there is no sin? And I think that what we have to do is consider this concept for a second. What is free will to us today is going to be different than what free will will be to us in heaven. Right now, we have a large number of choices. But in the end, I think we'll just have a little bit less choice in heaven because we won't be able to make the wrong choice. That doesn't mean that all we're going to do is just like, you know, we're not going to go back to being robots, which I think is what most people think. We're not going to go into a position where we're forced to worship him because we have no choice. We're forced to pray because we have no choice. We're forced to do everything else because we have no other choice. I think we'll have all those choices. You want to pray? You want to worship? You want to hang out? You want to rest? You want to take a nap? You want to eat? You want to run through the forest, you want to go dive into a waterfall, like you can do whatever you want. You just can't sin. We won't be tempted. There will be no temptation. And I think why will there be no temptation? One is because there won't be any sin. You can't really choose the thing. But I think there are more practical reasons. We'll know that sin really does lead to death. We'll know that there really is a God. He's in front of us all day long. We'll know that he is right and all the people who chose the other way are now somewhere else really having a hard time of it. The other reason is that there will be no more Satan to even come and try to tempt us. All right, He won't be there to try to come after us. Listen to this quote. My inability to be God, my inability to be an angel, my inability to be a rabbit, my inability to be a flower is not a violation of my free will. It's just simply the reality of my nature. This is the new nature that will be ours in heaven, the righteousness of Christ and a nature that cannot sin. Consider this. God cannot sin, yet he has greater free choice than anyone in the world. So the inability to sin does not mean we don't have free will. The inability to sin just means that we can't choose sin. We'll still have free will. But just like this author says, just like you can't just choose to be a flower. Like if I said, well... Wes, can you choose to be a flower? i be like, no, I can't. I was like, well, does that restrict your free will somehow? Not really. You still have all the other choices in the world to make other than being a flower. And it may be something else for somebody else. Like you may be in heaven and go, you know what? Which is actually Eric's question. You're in heaven and you go, I want to be God. Well, you'll just know that it's just not happening. It's not even a choice you can make and just move on. Now, now go make one of the other millions of choices you have. Do you want to rest, sleep, eat, do whatever you're just not going to be God and you know it and you don't have any, any problem with it.